if you both decide, or even if just one party decides, this is just not working for me or for us or for our children, then a person should always have the license to walk away. If you say divorce is not an option, I would never get divorced. Then it's not a marriage, it's a prison. In this episode of the Hope to Recharge podcast, we welcome Elisheva Liss, a licensed psychotherapist whose training is in marriage and family therapy and who also treats individuals in addition to working with couples. She's also a writer, speaker, and digital educator. In this first episode of a two-part series, Elisheva discusses whether divorce is a failed marriage. And now your host for the Hope to Recharge podcast, Matana. Hi, Elisheva. Thank you for joining me here today. I don't really need to introduce you, but I really do because there's so many different aspects of life that we meet on. Although I call you a friend, but I really look up to you as a mentor, as a leader, as a teacher, as a controversial person that is very bright. And I feel very fortunate and lucky that I live close to you and I can sh- I can brainstorm with you, vent to you and express myself to you and feel safe with it. And I don't have many people in my world in my circle that are in the orthodox world that I feel that safe with. Alisheva, thank you for joining me here. And thank you for making me feel so safe in your presence. Thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. You're always so generous with your descriptives. I never know what to say, but I also consider you a dear friend and I learn a tremendous amount from you. And I love our conversations, both our digital conversations that we share with people and our offline conversations, just processing life. So it's always an honor to talk to you. And I'm looking forward to today's discussion. Alisheva is a family and marriage therapist. Did I say the title correctly? Usually people say marriage and family, but it's the same thing, marriage and family, MFT. Slash sex therapist. And she is really known for her incredible work in this field, especially in our community. You lecture, people come to you for advice in the school system and the education system, how to bring it before the crisis, how to educate our children. You even have online courses for all these platforms. And it starts, and very often you say it starts from young. Don't wait until the marriage is falling apart to start educating. And unfortunately, they show up on your couch, in your room, in your office, when things are dire, when it's really falling apart. And there's a lot of education that's missing beforehand. And one of the things that I keep on finding, and it bothers me, and I want to understand, and I feel like I'm going to have a therapy session with Elisheva now, so I feel really lucky. Very often, I hear from friends, family members, my, myself, my own thoughts, I find the conversation around divorce and marriage as if it's a crisis, a disaster. If a marriage doesn't work out, it means I failed. If a marriage is not full of love, it's something's wrong with me. I'm not working hard enough. I need to stay in this marriage in order to succeed for my children. And something inside me as a person that looks for joy and happiness, and my whole life is around creating that truth, living the truth. And I believe that when we live our truth, that's where the joy comes through. That's where the happiness, when we're not living in controversy, I see it that there's a feeling of disappointment to ourselves, to our families, to society. What's going on there? It's such a heavy topic. And I love the angle you chose. But at first, when you said, I want to talk about people's reactions and responses and perspectives on divorce, first, I was thinking, it's not such an, a not discussed topic. It is a discussed topic. But then when you went a little deeper and you're like, no, people feel like divorce is a failure. People feel like marriage is like a pass fail course. And the stigma around people's responses to divorce, they're even their own responses to divorce. I'm like, oh, that is an angle that I think is really rich to explore and really important to explore. And one of the things that you and I were vacillating about was because we're both members of the Orthodox community in our personal lives and our professional work spans outside the parameters of our, our specific religious groups, walking the line or the space space. There's a lot of space 
you know, in between the dominant secular cultural perspectives and also within our religious community. And I think that we also see a lot of crossover between multiple religious communities. So for example, in the Catholic community, where a lot of people to this day, I think, believe that divorce is not supposed to happen at all, then they have to, which is not a Jewish perspective. In the Jewish perspective, it was built into the Bible, that divorce as a legitimate option. But there are religious beliefs. I don't want to speak too much on behalf of, the, of Christianity because it's not my uh, you know, area of expertise. But my understanding is there are a lot of people who, for their own theological reasons, find the concept of divorce problematic. I think coming from our perspective, and even in the predominant secular culture, there is this sense of failure, this sense of disappointment, this sense of mourning and grief and loss, because there is loss involved, right? There, oh, I don't think anybody goes to their wedding, or puts on a beautiful white dress and pays a lot of money, and invites friends over thinking to themselves, well, maybe yes, maybe no, we'll see what happens. Most people, when they make that level of commitment, their, their hope and their feeling and their expectation is they want to feel the until death do us part, right? Generally speaking, there are a lot of exceptions. And especially within our, not our specific religious community, but let's say factions of religious communities where people get married, where they don't know each other so well, there is that less romantic component, which is a very real issue. And the marriages between people who don't necessarily know each other, that's a whole different sort of conversation, which we can incorporate or not, depending on which direction you want to take it. But I think that in the broader dominant culture, including secular culture and most religious cultures, there is a feeling of joy and excitement and commitment when people you know, walk down that aisle and they say, I do, and they mean it, and they want to be together for, for their whole lives. So when it arises, either on the part of one partner or both, that this isn't going to be forever, it's a change of plan. We thought we were going to be doing this forever, and now we're not, right? And so people change plans all the time. And I think there is an important distinction that needs to be made in terms of the personal experience and the societal reaction experience between a couple that's breaking off their relationship, just the two of them, versus when there are children involved, because I think that it is a very different experience. When two individuals decide they're going to part ways, married, they're going to get divorced, and there's no children involved, they, they can make a clean break, really. Once they figure out their finances and their belongings, and like sometimes their friends have to sort themselves out, but often, especially now since the uh, no-fault divorce system, there are more and more people who can part amicably without too much hostility and maintain their friends even sometimes. But it can be a clean break. When there are children in the picture, then you're going to be co-parenting for many years to come if the children are young. And even if the children are older, there's still occasions when the children want to have both their parents together at the same party, get-together occasion. You know? And so then it's a very different dynamic around the divorce itself and around the people that it affects and people's responses to it. I think to a certain extent, whenever we're looking at a phenomenon, we look at the extent. We measure it. Very few things are totally binary, black and white, yes or no. And I think, is divorce sad is a, is a good question to, to struggle with. You know, very often you'll hear somebody who either went through a divorce or that their parents got divorced when they were children or even when they were an adult. And someone will say, oh, I'm so sorry. And they'll be like, oh, no, the divorce was the best thing that ever happened to me. It was what preceded the divorce that was rough. Right, exactly. And, and sometimes people say, no, the divorce was the most painful thing I ever did. But that doesn't mean it was the wrong thing. Some people will say the divorce was organic. They were just the relationship was walking steadily towards that natural needing to end in this way. It involved a parting of ways that was actually even beautiful, I would say. Like there are people more and more now who are actually celebrating their divorces, not so much within our communities yet, our religious communities, but let's say on the internet, on social media, people having like a, a get together, almost having a ceremony about it to formalize and say, look, when we got married, it was in the midst of lots of family and friends and we're making this life decision to part ways, but we want the love and support of our family and friends too. And we want to let them know that we're not looking to hurt one another. And that can be done really beautifully. In my capacity as a marriage and family therapist, I write about this a lot. I have a whole bunch of blog posts about it. 
because like you said, it's something that particularly within our circles is not talked about. And there is, I think, a lower official divorce rate in most religious communities than there is in the secular dominant culture at large because of the stigma. I think because of the stigma, people would like to say it's because people are happier in their marriages. I, I hope that's true. I wouldn't say that I know for sure that it's not true. But I also know that it's very difficult to say that because you can't assess marital satisfaction independent of the variable of the cost, the emotional, social, and often financial cost of getting divorced um, in a society, in a community that doesn't really support the notion of divorce as a, not that it's not a legitimate option, but it's almost like you have to prove why. Like, why did you make this choice? That's the first question. Why? What happened? What if nothing happened? We just grew apart. What if we're two good people that got married really young? And in our society, what is it? 19, 20, 21? We don't even know what profession we might want to be. We might be in school for our profession. And how many people went for a profession for, let's say, becoming a lawyer or wait, you know what? I don't want to do this. And relationships. Think about your best friend growing up, your best friend. You did sleepovers. You went to camp with them. You did everything every day. How many of them do you really stay in touch with till today? We call it the camp friends, the, the high school friends, the Shabbaton friends. College roommates. Yes. Or we went through law school or medical school. We were very close. I also call it the neighbor, the technical. We had two toddlers and we were so close because we were meeting every day at the park. But then I moved to Florida and you stayed in Farakaway and our toddlers grew up and we didn't have a common thread anymore. It happens also in a marriage, right? A thousand percent. Relationships change over the life cycle. Esther Perel talks about this. Yes. One of the things that she likes to point out is that we have put so much expectation and pressure on this one monogamous lifelong relationship that it's like bearing the weight of so much. Like in, in years past, I think people stay married longer, not because they were so much more in love, but there was, there are a lot of different reasons why they did. There's societal structures. A children, money, yeah. continuation, yeah. religion. A social survival. Like this right. is what you have to do. A person on their own was really an outcast and like that up to a lower extent for a lot right. of people. But also people lived shorter. And they were out so much during the day surviving, feeding. She talks about this, I think, in her first book. Mating in captivity. It's a great book. And the difference between 60 years ago and 100 and 200 years ago. And now the last 60 years, the modern world changed so much that the concept, the Hollywood concept of love and marriage completely change. Maybe we have to readdress this whole marriage look and how we come to it. And I think that's why maybe so many, even rabbis are pro prenup now. In our world, it wasn't so common in our Orthodox world, but now it's becoming more and more common, right? hundred percent. Yes. And I think people are recognizing that. I think that the shift that happened, I don't know whether it was 1970s or the 80s, there was some point in our lifetime that they moved towards the concept of a no-fault divorce legally. Mm -hmm. And that completely shifted the landscape of what divorce looked like for a lot of couples emotionally, legally, practically. It used to have to be, again, both legally and socially, that if you were going to end a relationship, you almost had to demonize the other person yes. in order to validate your choice. Like, yes, I had to leave them because they were crazy or they were abusive or they were doing something terrible. And like what I say to you, Alicia, do you find that every divorce has a narcissist in it? Everybody's narcissistic now, right? They're toxic. And it could turn into that. But yes. if we didn't have the stigma and we would address it as not such a taboo, like awful failure... Yeah. Maybe it wouldn't get to that narcissistic trait. Maybe we wouldn't feel toxic. Maybe we wouldn't bring all the anger and the resentment and the unseen part of us in the relationship. 
if we didn't have that umbrella of keeping keeping our family whole. And if we break it, we fail. 100%. One of the articles that I've more recently written on this topic is, I'm trying to remember what the title of it is, but it's based on the idea that a lot of people will say divorce is not an option, right? People will sometimes say they'll come to marriage therapy and they'll say, just so you know, divorce is not an option. By the way, I asked that first thing yeah. when people come to me with their fears or whatever they're working on. I'm like, what's your goal? Is your goal to stay with your child, with your partner, with your parent? Do you want to move out of your parent? What's your goal? Is your goal to stay married? Is your goal to be healthy? What's your goal? I'm not one to set that goal. Do you sometimes feel stuck? Do you wish you can be somewhere else? Do you have a vision of where you want to get to, but you just don't know what the first step to take in order to get to that life that you're dreaming of? How did I shift from deep depression, from extreme anxiety to a thriving life, to a productive life, to a life full of joy? I put many things into practice and it's every single day. Many of you know that it's gratitude, a healthy mindset, boundaries, self-love, and one of the most important things that many people don't speak about self-forgiveness and forgiveness to others essential for healing if you want to work one-on-one with me on these topics in order to move forward towards that dream life that you have a vision of click the link below in the show notes it's a custom made program for you one-on-one with me we will develop a concrete program that you can implement in your life so you can create a better well-being click the link below looking forward to working with you What's your goal? Is your goal to stay married? Is your goal to be healthy? What's your goal? I'm not one to set that goal. Of course. So they have to figure out what they want to do. I have a bias and I know that the bias is based on how I was raised and where I live and how I live. But my bias is that when you have children, you want to, and there are a lot of exceptions to this, but that you want to know that you tried like really well to try to work on the marriage before making the decision to dissolve the marriage simply for one reason. And again, this exception to the rule is if there's abuse, if there's severe dysfunction, if it's very clear that everybody's miserable, there are a lot of reasons. But when you're dealing with a regularly stable case and it's just a situation where people are like growing apart and finding their differences or they're not happy together anymore, I would say, look, you might know 98% that you're going to leave your relationship and you might agree that that's the right thing to do. But I believe that it's worthwhile to work on it simply because one day your kid is going to say to you, Mom, dad, did you try to stay together? Because for a lot of children, it isn't necessarily so much fun growing up in a two-parent binuclear family when there's two separate homes for the children. And because it's becoming so much more normal, the more common it is, the less pathologized and the less out of ashamed of it kids feel, but it's not necessarily what they want. So if your kid turns to you and says, did you really try to stay married? Then you can turn to them and say, you know what, sweetie, you really did. We tried to save the marriage, but ultimately we decided that it was best for everybody involved. It was healthiest for our family to, to continue going this way. And that's really the only reason. And regrets, maybe. And regrets, exactly. The other That, that was the other piece is yeah. that people sometimes, the same way you were saying before, people don't necessarily know what they're signing up for exactly when they get married. How can you? Pervasive. It's so huge. It's so hard to know what it's going to look like. Just the same way when you're 19, 20 years old, you don't really know what your career looks like. And that's why people sometimes make career changes. People don't necessarily know what their relationship is going to look like. We don't know what we're going to look like in 10 years. Exactly. Or even in a year without the misery that we're going through. It could be we're going to turn into a different person, but just because we're in a different environment that allows us to evolve into ourselves. Our relationships absolutely play a huge part in shaping us, being able to look back, but, but the same way you don't always know how you're going to feel within the marriage, you also don't necessarily know how you're going to feel after separation or divorce. And so to be able to look back, you always want to know that you stayed 
a little longer than you intended to, whether it's a relationship or a marriage, even when you're dating. I always say, give it one extra date because yeah. you don't ever want to look back and say, did I give that a real shot? And that too soon? You, I probably should have broken up with them a date before. Again, unless there's something terrible going on or 1000% clear, there's very few rules that are across the board, 100% applicable. But as a good MO, a good like mode of operandi, you know, modus operandi, just to say, What's a good practice in general, again, this is my bias, is that if there's no, you know, obvious reason why you need to get out ASAP, if there are children say, you know what, let's go to therapy, let's figure this out, let's see if, you know, what's going on with us, understand what happened in the context of this relationship, try and figure out if there's something we're not thinking of as far as trying to reconnect in a different way. But then if you both decide, or even if just one party decides, like, this is just not working for me, or for us, or for our children, for any of the people involved, and it could just be the one person speaking, then a person should always have the license to walk away. And I always say, if you say divorce is not an option, I would never get divorced. Then it's not a marriage, it's a prison. Exactly. Thank you. You said it so well. Thank you. There's always some threshold. There's another very connected related idea is the notion of unconditional love. I happen, I know this is unpopular opinion. And I was hoping you're going to go there because you say it so well. I was hoping you're going to bring it up because I truly believe that there's no unconditional love in a marriage and it shouldn't be. Nor should it be. Exactly. I believe that the people who are deserving of unconditional love are babies and young children. You can make a case for older children too, but in terms of a romantic relationship, unconditional love feels really unhealthy to me because the notion of romantic love is the fact that I love you because of who you are. And it's not just like who you are, this the flesh and blood and bones that make you up. It's, you know, what you say and what you do, your behavior, your qualities, your traits. How you feel me, not only me feeling you. Exactly, how we relate to each other. Right, it's a give and take. And if it's unconditional, that means I remove myself from the equation. Which people will challenge me on that and say, oh, so it means that if I do something wrong, I lose your love? It's like, no. well, no, it depends how wrong the thing you did was. Like if you took a gun and tried to kill me, then yeah, you lose my love. Or how often duration, frequency, authenticity. So many variables. Yes, exactly. I think you made a post about it is like the past will affect how I react to the present, but there is, we have to bring all the perspective into the situation to weigh it. And yes, maybe I'll have a lot of brownie points and this one, I'll let it go. But how often, how much, how many chips do I have to cash in in order to overcome this? And there is no unconditional love. Is there something that's preventing you from achieving your goals or interfering with your happiness? Maybe it's anxiety or stress. BetterHelp.com will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And you can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line and it's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online with a broad range of expertise available depending on what you need and the services available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send messages to your counselor. BetterHelp.com is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches that make it easy and free to change your counselors if you need to. And it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp.com wants you to start living a happier life today. So visit BetterHelp.com slash hope to recharge. That's BetterHelp com slash hope to recharge and join over a million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. You'll also get 10% off your first month. Once again, that's betterhelp.com slash hope to recharge. How many chips do I have to cash in, in order to overcome this? They call it the emotional bank account model. I, I read it about it in Stephen Covey, but I'm not sure if it, it's that's where it originated. I think that's where I saw it. But the emotional bank account model is really nice because um, it's not perfect. Any metaphor, any analogy is going to be a little imperfect. Saying something is similar to something else doesn't mean it's the exact same thing. Um, but sometimes it's useful as an analogy, as a parable to understand it. And so the same way, if you want to be financially healthy, then what you want to be doing is making sure that you make more frequent and or larger deposits in your bank account than withdrawals, right? 
it's unrealistic to never take money out because sometimes we need to make purchases. But if we want to be financially healthy, we want to make sure that we're saving more than we're spending, we're depositing more than we're withdrawing, and we're investing in a way that we always have a cushion, right? And the same thing with relationships, right? It's unrealistic to expect that we're never going to hurt or be hurt by our, our significant other. That's just part of being in an, a vulnerable, authentic love relationship. It is a good goal to say, I never intentionally want to hurt my partner, but we're, we are going to hurt each other sometimes. We are going to need to ask annoying favors from each other sometimes, big ones, small ones. We are going to have to sacrifice for them sometimes. That's just part of being imperfect humans and flawed in a relationship where we have different needs. But in a healthy relationship, what's going on is we are investing. We're showing each other love in lots of big and small ways we're giving and doing for each other and at the same time we are also allowing the partner and making sure that our partner is also taking care of us and it's not like a tit for tat even steven 50 50 kind of thing because obviously that's not realistic to even how do you even track something like that it's not quantifiable um, but it, just like the emotional bank account like we, we want to be making sure that the statements that we say to our significant other are mostly complimentary, appreciative, loving, helpful, collaborative kind of statements so that when we have to say something critical or assert ourselves or challenge them on something, it's embedded in the context of, I love you, I trust you, I feel safe with you. And then there's this thing that we have to deal with. But that's one way you know, to look at a relationship. And that's how we forge the love. The love is also comes from repair. When we repair a, a rift, we had a fight and something happened, or I'm hurt, or I need to be taken care of because something happened, or you need to be taken care of because something happened to you. That, these are all these different ways that we invest. But ultimately, love is not unconditional. It accumulates over time. And sometimes it deteriorates over time. And sometimes, this is something I talk to my couples a lot about, you know, that I work with a lot. There's like some, kind of two broad categories of work on a relationship. There's like looking at the problems and trying to address the problems. And then there's the fostering and building connection. In biblical terms, we call it removing the bad and doing good. Exactly. And I think that when it comes to ourselves, there's that. When I'm working on myself, like I want to try to stop doing the things that are not serving me and also build up the things that I want to be doing more of. And the same thing holds true in a relationship. So some relationships are deteriorating because of what there's like, I call them hot fights and cold fights, fights or hot conflict and cold conflict. Hot conflict is we're bickering all the time. We're arguing, we're yelling at each other, we're stomping out, we're slamming doors like it's just not good and, and that's the kind of marital strife that's hard to ignore because especially if they're children it's you don't want to live like that then there's another kind of marital deterioration that's a little more subtle but you feel it anyway which is cold what i call colder conflict colder is when we're just like avoiding each other and avoiding each other doesn't mean not talking but we're avoiding the intimacy the closeness the connection i believe it coexisting without a relationship totally very often i can't even count how many couples will come to me and say not that we're fighting we don't fight we just have no connection we don't have desire and for me it's the saddest part because at, at least when you fight you're connecting there's yes. a there's something when there's this passive like not even aggressive just this passiveness it's so lonely this connection the, the yeah lack of connection very painful and and i think another piece that will help i know this is not really the topic for today determining when to get divorced right that's a much broader topic but what leads to it and what is wrong and like why what's the elevated tragedy that happens that we were not educated and i'm going to go into the next question but finish your thoughts sometimes their marriage needs to be repaired because there's a lot of fighting and the conflict needs to be resolved Sometimes what we need to do is say, hold on, we're just not feeling at all connected. We haven't been investing in the emotionally intimate part of our relationship and we feel it between ourselves with an emptiness and a sadness. But one thing that I look at with a lot of couples is whether a, pro a problem is what we call primary or secondary. Primary means it was always there and secondary means it used to be different. You're grieving the past and you want to bring it into now, but life is different because you have a lot of children, you have responsibilities, life happens. And maybe once it was easy for us to do it and now it's impossible, maybe. A thousand percent. But I think also two pieces 
pieces. Number one, totally what you said. One is in a certain sense, it's easier to create something from something than something from nothing. So when you have a couple that says, you know what, it's really been like this from the beginning. We married each other because it was convenient. We kept dating because there was no reason to say no to each other. So we just kept going because we got along. But there was never this passion. There was never this attraction. There was never this excitement about one another. So then you're looking to try and create something from that was never there and see if you can make it happen, which doesn't mean to say that it will never happen. It's a big question mark. Can we foster that kind of excitement about one another? Is that chemistry, that pheromonal pull towards magnetic pull towards one another even possible for these two people? With other cases, we used to be so into each other. We used to be so infatuated or so passionate or so in love. And over time, either we changed or our circumstances changed and we've grown apart or we started fighting. There, they have that past that they can draw upon and say, it used to be so great what happened to us. That doesn't, again, doesn't guarantee that they can re, you know, recreate it again because people change and circumstances change, but it, they know what it feels like to enjoy one another, which can make it either more painful or more hopeful, or maybe both, because on the one hand, it's what you lost as opposed to never having had it in the first place. On the other hand, it's, we know what it feels like to get close, so we can taste it, we can visualize it. But very often people change in ways that are so profound and so you know irreversible that it's, Pharrell had a line in one of her, I, I think it was a podcast or a lecture or something that I saw her doing, and she said something like, this marriage is over. I don't know but then she's like, okay, do you want your next marriage to be with each other or with other people? I love that. Isn't that amazing? I use it with myself. I, I yes. often tell Ari, let's start dating again. Like life can be so busy. And as if life evolves and our kids get older, our responsibilities change, our mind, our, our time, physical time used to be that 7 p.m. Everybody was asleep. And then I could go to yoga. We can, Ari can watch his TV show and then we can bond on thoughts of the end of the day. But when your kids are going to sleep at 12, and they want part of your time because you're working too late, then you have to make sure that you have the time set aside and it's a priority. I remember you, oh my gosh, now I have a, I remember a conversation that we had, but I have a, I'm going to go off topic now, but I'm going to, I want to come back to this next question about education, okay? But I just want to say this because it's appropriate to say it. I remember we had this big analytic conversation about sex dates with our husbands. And I'm like, I cannot, and you give three different ways. You can either have the day of the week or three, like to a certain days, hints, or just you have to be spontaneous. Which one are you? And I'm like, what? You're going to put me in as a schedule on your calendar? I remember you said that to me and I was like, people do that? It was so off to me. It was so off to me. But then I realized, first of all, my life got very busy. And I could say, and then I said to myself, oh, that's what Alicia Eva meant. I actually have an article. We can link this one to a, ty- a, a, a blog post titled The Pros and Cons of Pre-Scheduled Sex. Yeah. And, and that's a, another thing that married couples often find themselves mourning and needing to regroup around. And this can often make the difference between a couple really growing apart in a way that they end up ending the marriage versus just trying to recalculate and say, hold on, maybe we just need to reinvent the way we do connection. When I was using the word intimacy before, I meant emotional intimacy, but sexual intimacy is very often running parallel to the emotional intimacy. So very often, and when I suggest the notion of maybe you should think about scheduling sex dates, there's at least one part partner in the couple who's going to be like, what? No, that's so not spontaneous. That's so not romantic, whatever. It's the story we tell and our, tell ourselves. And if we remove totally. ourselves from the story and the emotions that come with it. And it's the judgment. So I'll say, yeah, okay. How's the spontaneity been working out for you so far? Cause like. <laughs> We spontaneously haven't had sex in four months, but like, whatever, (laughs) but we're waiting for that perfect moment to pounce on each other. Hold on a second. And if people will say, it doesn't feel real. It doesn't feel loving. It doesn't feel special. I would say, if you plan a 50th birthday party for a relative, right? You wouldn't just be like, oh, let's spontaneous text everyone and tell them to show up at a restaurant. No, it's because it's important. And because you love them so much, you're going to put effort and preparation and time and planning into making sure that it's something that comes together nicely. 
And yes, when you're young and dating or newlywed and in love and you have plenty of time and not a lot of responsibility, you can just spontaneously go for it whenever you want. And that means, you know, going out together, hanging out together, making love. That's appropriate for that stage of life. For some people, it's still anxiety inducing. But as your schedule changes and as your lifestyle changes and as your libido changes, the relationship is going to change in terms of what its needs are. And so I think that's for a lot of people why divorce, just circling back to the original time, why for a lot of people, divorce does feel so sad because it is a change of plans that sometimes one person didn't want. Sometimes both people didn't want. Very often I'll work with a couple and they're both crying about the fact that they chose to end the marriage. Like they recognize that it's probably the right thing for them to do, but there is a loss of it. Sometimes it's not sad. Sometimes it's a sigh of relief. And sometimes it's both. Often it's both. Very often it's both. Yeah. If they're very emotionally honest with themselves, pretend that you're living on an island on yourself. What would your emotions be then without the collectives? Is there chocolate? Yeah. What are your emotions if there was no judgment, if there was no expectations? Societal reaction. Yeah. Yeah. Or religion or family or thoughts or something that we want, a a vow we made to ourselves growing up. Let's say from, for someone that comes from a divorced family, they could say, I was so miserable in a divorce and my parents got divorced. I will never want to do that for my children. So I'm willing to be that collateral damage of in my life and say, I'm willing to do that instead of doing it to my children. And that's a decision. That's a choice. That's a value. Right. 100% decision, a choice that you're making and no one's tying it to you. You're making that this is what I spoke about with Martini. It's your core value choice and you stick to it and you're okay with it. And very often when we know our core values, we make choices like us with keeping kosher. I will probably never know what shrimp tastes like or a cheeseburger. And I'm okay with that. And that's okay. And that's okay. We don't feel surprised. And I'm totally okay with that. Right. And when we know where it's coming from, then it doesn't feel oppressive. It feels like a choice versus a commandment. I think that when you have someone who says, I'm so committed to marriage because of my own experiences, either I grew up in a home with a miserable marriage and I don't want to do that to my children, or I grew up in a home with um, parents who were divorced and that was really hard for me. So I don't want to do that to my children. Or I grew up in a home with a really beautiful marriage and I'm committed to working on that. Just owning and acknowledging and recognizing how our past formative experiences affect our biases and our convictions and our values is also really helpful because it gives us that self-awareness and that metacognition because there's another person in the picture too and figuring out what your partner, what they're bringing to the table. I think like everything, there are multiple perspectives. So looking at a divorce as a tragedy, I don't think it's doing anybody favors. Looking at it as cavalier, just something that people just could do flippantly, like maybe yes, maybe no, we'll stick it out, whatever. So that I think could be okay if you're in a marriage where there aren't children yet or at all. And then yeah, no, it's your prerogative. You can get divorced if or whenever you want. You can always get divorced if or whenever you want. Again, my bias is that if there are children, you want to like dig deeper and figure out what's really going on here. Just so I know that when I look back and I recognize when I reassess and analyze what are the steps that led to this, to this choice to be able to feel like, okay, you know what? I was very intentional about what we did here. I think because people recognize that it's rare that there's a divorce that's entirely painless, that either at the moment of divorce, following the divorce or preceding the divorce, there was some level of pain or suffering that people had to go through somewhere along the way. So the reaction is going to be something like, oh, I'm I'm sorry to hear that. And, And very often the response is, no, don't be sorry. It was good. Or I'm sorry for the struggles. They must have led to this, right? It's not, if you made the decision in an easy way, that's sad because that means you didn't invest the emotional exercise that you have to put into really trying to save a marriage. Relationships take work. Yeah. So if it was something easy, that's also very sad. I feel like, okay, you didn't invest enough in, like you said before, make sure you did it a little bit more than your comfort zone. Yeah, the due diligence. Yeah, a little bit more. 
But now that we understand why the concept can be sad, and we're trying to redefine that it's not a tragedy. Sometimes it is a tragedy if that's the dream you had. For me, if you this was your dream. It's also a tragedy when it's not felt both ways. So sometimes, and I've seen this, yeah. spouse is still very much in love with you to stay together and thought everything was good. Right. And then the other one just says, I don't think I love you. I'm not sure I ever did, or I've met somebody else. Or, and it's not really you, it's me. And I'm just lost. Right. It's, I'm going through my own life crisis. That partner who's getting abandoned, for them, it really is a big loss and a tragedy. And that's why it's so person specific. Like, not just the same way, like, no friendships are the same. People have different friendships and different, you know, identities with themselves. Different relationships and different divorces are different. And so sometimes that person will really need to mourn as if they they lost someone to death. Like I had a partner and now I don't. And I don't understand why that happened because I still love them and I right. wasn't privy to the process. Right. So in that case, it really does feel tragic. But yeah, in the, in the majority of cases, I don't think that's really what's going on. And in those cases, it's much more intentional and people don't want pity. I don't think it ever feels good to feel pity, you know? It depends from who. I think it depends from who yeah. and how. And I think it should be something that they should voice versus you just generally give because maybe they feel like they finally made this decision and it's a part, it's like leaving a job that you feel like you need to get your salary and you really hate your job and you're there for 20 years and you're like, that's it. I'm going to just take the leap of faith and I'm going to not live past 40 or 50 in an, for another decade doing something that I really don't enjoy. So I'm going to, I don't know where I'm going to get my next paycheck. I don't know how it's going to be, but I'm choosing myself and I'm going to move forward. It is going to take me to the, I would, I want to say my friend that was in a very lonely, I would say emotionally abusive, not physically, emotionally abusive marriage. Like she was leading her life alone. I asked her, what took you so long? Cause I knew for years and years that she's suffering. Yeah. Complaining yeah, and suffering. I said, what took you so long? And she married a few children already by the time she got divorced. She said, Matsana, I made myself, uh, I made a, a decision. And I said, I am not live, leaving because I might find joy somewhere else. I'm leaving because this is not my place. So powerful. This is something, it, it's such an important point to think about when we're talking about this notion of leaving a relationship. So very, I've, I've heard people say this so many times. I would leave my marriage in a heartbeat if I knew that within a certain period of time, I was going to meet somebody better and better. Not just remarried. I want to do, do this again. But unfortunately, that's not really a guarantee. Sometimes it's a guarantee because they've met someone already. But even then, the person that you've met, you don't know how it's going to be. At least right. there, they can say, but I know that there's somebody I like better. Okay, it's a different dynamic. But but most cases, if, if, the, if the issue was not a specific infidelity episode where they met someone and got emotionally involved with them, then they have to make a very painful choice, which is painful, which is to say, it depends how miserable they are in their marriage. But if they're ambivalent in the marriage to say, I'd be better off alone than in this relationship. There's actually a book that I recommend to a lot of people who are suffering from relationship ambivalence. It's called, I always forget which phrase comes first, but too bad to stay too good to leave, or maybe too good to leave too bad to stay by Mira Kirshenbaum. And she like explores this relationship ambivalence of when a person is absolutely miserable in their marriage, like you said, there's abuse, whether it's emotional or, or physical abuse, or where there's some other like severe pathology going on, or when it's just so obvious that there's nothing left to grab onto, there's no sense of emotional connection, no desire for one another in any way. So then it's clear. And then it's a question of just having the guts to take that step and say, okay, we're ending it. But a lot of times the people who, who make this decision are not coming from a place of like clear, that clarity of just this has to end. They're coming from a place of, you know, there is some good here. There's a lot of good here. And there's a lot that I value and, and respect and appreciate about my relationship. Often, very often they'll say, I still love them. Like we still love each other. Love is not always enough to keep it together. So sometimes I'll recommend this book for people to analyze the different variables. When I'm analyzing a marriage in therapy, I'll look at like intellectual, emotional, physical, and spiritual. You look at all those areas of compatibility 
and see where the resources, the assets of the relationship lie so that we can take them and amplify them if in fact they're looking to try and salvage the relationship. I remember that I had a professor in grad school, one of our couples therapy classes, and, and he said, we're not in the business of saving marriage. We're, we're in the business of helping people. And I was sitting there all like my 20 something year old arrogance. And I'm like, no, I'm going to save marriages. That's what I want to do. And, and then, and, and afterwards, and I thought, cause I'm a person of faith. I told the sanctity of marriage higher than this person. But ultimately, once I started working with people, I realized, no, you know what? I, it's not my place to be in the business of saving marriages. It's my place to honor the needs of the people who come into my office and entrust me with their, with their, you know, confiding and opening up and sharing what they want to do. And like you said, I'll ask, what are your therapeutic goals? So sometimes their therapeutic goals are, are we want to do whatever we can to save our relationship. Sometimes their therapeutic goals are, we want to figure out whether we want to save our relationship, whether this relationship can be salvaged. And sometimes not often, but occasionally the therapeutic goals are, we're pretty sure we want to get divorced. We just want to like, make sure we're not leaving anything. The regret exactly. that we spoke about that we won't have. Be responsible. Stay tuned for part two of this episode in which Matana continues her conversation with Ellie Sheva next week. Thank you for listening till the end. We highly appreciate all of our listeners. And Mental Health Together is better. You being here means a tremendous amount to us. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like some extra boost of information and inspiration that is not on the podcast, you can go to our website, hopetorecharge.com. There's some premium content that for the cost of a cup of coffee, you can download some amazing information that will help you, a tool that will guide you through life. So don't skip a beat. Don't hesitate. Go to hopetorecharge.com and see what other offerings we have there for your mental health well-being. Thank you for joining us. And remember, if you enjoyed this and you want to say thank you, the best way of gratitude will be by you leaving a review or a comment or sharing this with a loved one. There is no greater form of gratitude for us. Thank you. Bye till next time.